you know, I was thinking about what to do for this lecture, and I had originally called it in, the, in our template of lectures, Enter, Entering a Golden Age, European Visual Arts at the Dawn of the 17th Century. Um, and I think I've, I've spoken to you before about how I really came to a realization in the course of thinking about this course that it was irresponsible not to teach it globally in a way, that, that there were too many interconnections with the rest of the world to be, to be talked about. What that meant was that my initial excitement of teaching the course turned into something else, turned into a, a second excitement. But my initial excitement had to do with this. When um, Linda and, and Marika first proposed to me working with them on a course that went from 1599 to 1609 as a moment of change, I was thinking, it's amazing how many under- uh, appreciated artists were working in those years. And I was thinking that mainly I would turn this course into a course about some artists that most people never hear of, or if they ever do, they don't know much about them. And I realized in giving this lecture that I have been talking quite globally about interchange <coughs> so far, excuse me. And I wanted to go back for one day to my unsung heroes theme, okay? And so I want to bring you to talk to you a little bit about three artists working in Europe in precisely these years, in the years we're studying, who deserve a lot more attention than they get. And first I want a show of hands on how, people, how many people know of them. The one who's certainly the best known, although not well enough known, is Hendrik Holtzius. How many people are familiar with his work? Okay. How about Abraham Janssens? Couple, okay. And Francesco Mocchi. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, those are the artists I'm going to be talking to you about today. A little bit, just a just a little introduction, um, because I think they're really very fascinating. Um, and the other thing I would say is that um, moments of change may not necessarily be as visible as moments of consolidation. And so, whereas I can look at this period and see that it is the, the very flourishing of the English Renaissance, and it's this jump start of the Baroque in music with Monteverdi, uh, while there certainly are some artists, very famous artists working in this time, and... Um, I'm thinking specifically of Caravaggio is certainly um, at, the, at the zenith of his career. It might have gone farther if he hadn't died in, at 39. And El Greco, and, and, and Caravaggio was very much setting the stage, beginning the Baroque in painting, okay? Um, El Greco was also at the height of his career, but he was working in Spain, and he was a very eccentric artist. His work didn't really go anywhere except into modern museums. I mean, he didn't have a school or anything. And Rubens, who was working in Italy, was basically being a student. I mean, he was also getting commissions, but he, was, he, was not, he wasn't yet Rubens, because he didn't really become Rubens until he went back to Antwerp, and that wasn't until 1608. So we're looking at a, at a time when there aren't a lot of well-known big names from our period. On the other hand, it's just before the period when a lot of other artists that are very well known begin working. But they emphatically weren't working at this time. And so, for instance, Poussin is 15 years old. In 1609, when, this, when our period ends, Poussin is 15 years old. Uh, Bernini is 11. Velázquez is 10. Rembrandt is 3. And Vermeer won't be born for 25 more years. Okay, so um, when we think of the golden age, we're generally thinking of people like those. But there were incredibly important predecessors to these people. In two cases, I think very influential on them. And in another case, someone who just was too magnificent an artist for me to let go by. So those are the people I want to talk about in, in this class. Now, the first art history survey I took, which was amazingly late in my life, began Baroque sculpture with Gian Lorenzo Bernini. And I think that today, 
le uh, lecture courses about b the Baroque and about Baroque sculpture usually begin with Bernini, who seemed to have been born from the sea, from nowhere, in about 1620, and made these first works in uh, 1623, 1622, that have been considered to show the Baroque sort of action, the kind of interactive sculpture that you have to walk around, that takes up space, in which, for instance, when you stand in front of that David, you think you might get hit by a rock, okay? I mean, these are very, uh, very striking and engaging sculptures. And um, it's, it's often said that Bernini was the one who really began the idea of narrative sculpture, sculpture that isn't just something individual and fixed in space, but actually an event unfolding in time as you move around it, okay? So I've always had that, those dates, 1622, 1623, in my mind as, uh, you know, here we go into Baroque sculpture. And so imagine my surprise a few years back when I went to the little hill town of Orvieto in, in Italy. How many people have been to Orvieto? Oh, I'm so glad so many have. And the others, please go. They're it's, it's exceptional. It's up on top of a hill with vistas forever, an incredible cathedral. And it also has a very small cathedral museum that is basically a warehouse. Have you been in it? My parents live 20 minutes away. <laughs> Her parents live 20 minutes. <laughs> but you've been in the, in the, in the little uh, uh, museum. Yes. OK, yes. Because it's basically a little warehouse. And it's not open at regular hours. Or maybe it's open regular hours, two or three hours a day. So I got to Orvieto, and um, I hadn't realized that it was open so little. And I went to the desk, and they said, oh, sorry, can't do this. It's all over for the day. And I basically begged, mainly because I just, I, I'm so acquisitive of artistic experience. You know, it's just, I mean, I, I, it, it's not my field of expertise, but I just wanted to get in there. I didn't know what was in there. So a nice woman took pity on me and decided to take me in there by myself. And so we go in. And the first thing I see is a sculpture by Francesco Mocchi, the Virgin Annunciate from 1608. And it struck me as strange. And the way I'm explaining this is a little disingenuous because you're going to see that really the first thing I saw is the next thing I'm going to show. But um, when you look at her, the, she's looking very disturbed. She's looking extremely startled and surprised. She's not looking particularly happy about this intrusion. And usually, annunciations, first of all, they are not very often done in sculpture in the round. Secondly, they are usually done at a moment when Mary is acquiescing to the role she is going to have. And she is looking very uh, sedate and, and accepting of a big burden. But not this one. This one is, is quite alarmed. Well, I would suggest that Mary is alarmed, and in a sense, perhaps this piece of sculpture is alarmed, by what's going on with the angel of the Annunciation. Okay? I saw this work, and I just gasped. And I said to the, uh, and I, I didn't know going in. I didn't know about this artist. I didn't know uh, what was in that museum. And I turned to the woman and I said, um, oh my God, this must have been an incredible follower of Bernini's I'd never heard about. And she said, well, actually, no. This sculpture was sculpted in 1605. Okay? This was an amazing Italian sculptor. He was born in 1580 in a, in a town named Montevarchi, which I was just asking um, Marika about. Uh, it's, it's about a 20-minute train ride outside Florence, not very far. It was not very large in the period in 1580 when, um, when Mochi was born there. Uh, he went to study in Florence for a few years, and then in 1600, he went to Rome. And in Rome, uh, and, and remember, in 1600, Bernini is two. Um, he, um, he went to Rome, and he became a, a protege of the Farnese family. It was a very important family, now and then had held the papacy, um, but very, very important family uh, in, in the city, a lot of power. 
Now, the thing about Moki, and the reason that many of you, most of you, don't know about him, is that there is no, and never has been, a monograph on his work. There are no comprehensive articles about his work. There is one reasonable article about this one commission. And there was one exhibition of his work in 1980 in Montevarchi that never went anyplace else. Okay, And it has a catalog that has a bunch of very bad black and white photographs of his work in it. Now, what I wish I could show you is the back of this sculpture. I wish I could take you around this sculpture. I can take you, because of photos that have been taken through the years, around every inch of those Bernini sculptures. But I can't get you in back of this sculpture because there just aren't photos out there of this. But this figure swirls in space. It's as if it is still spiraling in air. It's like a ballerina who is twisting and her skirts are flying out around her. It is exceptional. And then when you look um, a little further, you see this freestanding foot. This was the sort of uh, device that Bernini would pick up on and find uh, and, and play with so deliciously. But it's all really here together in this sculpture. In fact, even the base of it has a sort of satiny texture that when you're with the sculpture, makes it look the tiniest bit blurry, as if this, the darn thing is still in motion. You know, it's really, it, it's a breathtaking piece of work. You, you, you've seen this. I must. You must have. <laughs> it, it, evidently, it didn't. It, it didn't strike Mar in quite the same way as that that dissonant chord in Monteverdi did. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> well, you should go back. <laughs> um, and so since that day, I've been quite interested in Moki. I don't, haven't had much time to look into him. I've done a little bit. Obviously, it's not that easy to look into him. And I've always thought it would be fun to influence a, a Renaissance or Baroque sculpture student in, in working on, on him because he deserves a lot more work. Um, but in fact, I, I had to see it with my own eyes. You, um, you woke up to the thing, and uh, it says uh, Opus Francisco... Moki de Montevarco, 1605. So that's actually when it was made. And again, this, this furl of, of cloth is, um, Bernini will, will make some finer furls of cloth, but believe me, he, he must have known the sculpture pretty well before he got, before he got going. Um, a couple other of his sculptures I want to show you. Um, this is his equestrian portrait of, of uh, Alexandro Farnese, which is in Piacenza. And um, the Farnese family were the rulers at this time of Piacenza. Um, and so it was actually, the and, and, and Moki knew the Farnese well from Rome, and they brought him to Piacenza to create two, actually, massive equestrian sculptures in bronze, um, they called him there in 1612 to start this, and that's uh, when this actually was this project was begun. Um, it was to be of one of uh, Renuccio uh, Farnese, who was the current leader, and one of his father, Alessandro. And there was a very political purpose behind this because Piacenza, a couple years before 1612, had had an uprising against the Farnese, and they had. They had squelched it, but um, they were very eager to show their force in the town. And so they had these massive uh, bronze sculptures made. And uh, this is one side. This is actually the image from the, from the catalog. This is the quality of images. That's a, the best sort of quality of Moki images that there is basically around these days. I did find one, though, that was a better view of this fantastic energized horse with the flowing hair and the, the bent neck and the, the billowing cloak. This is just not anything that had appeared before in equestrian sculpture. It's so much more active. It's so much more um, uh, in motion and very, very forceful. It's one of the most exquisite equestrian sculptures I have ever seen. And for any of you who are aware of the, the process of casting bronze, of course, the, the famous bronze caster 
was Benvenuto Cellini, who, who you know, has an apocalyptic story about, about uh, his trying to get the, uh, the uh, Perseus and Medusa to come together. Um, but actually, Moki was about the only other sculptor in these couple of centuries who was good enough with bronze so that he could actually cast these things himself, and he cast these sculptures himself. The Farnese had found a caster for him. He wasn't satisfied, and so he cast them himself. Really an amazing, amazing accomplishment. Um, and then finally, what's his, certainly his most famous sculpture, because it's in a famous place, is his St. Veronica in St. Peter's Basilica. Okay? And um, he went back to Rome in 1629 to work for the Barberini family. Well, actually, at the time he was doing this, um, one of the Barberini, Urban VIII, was pope, and that was a Barberini pope. And so through that sort of connection, he was asked to come into, he's doing other things for the Barberini family, but he was asked to come into uh, St. Peter's and work alongside Bernini. At this point, Bernini is very well known, um, but Moki was right in there with him. And he creates this extremely, again, active St. Veronica, very much in motion, running, sadly, with the, the sudarium of, um, with the face of Christ, just very lightly etched on its surface. And actually, this work was criticized terrifically when it was made because it seemed too unstable. It didn't seem stable enough for one of the saints who was a pillar of the church. And so actually, it came under quite a bit of attack at the time. Now, of course, people look at it and they utterly gasp. Um, I just want to show you a few other, just to give you an idea of how much in motion it seems. But isn't that, who, who just said that? I mean, yes, whoa. Isn't that astonishing, the way that, that sudarium billows in the wind? And then just the sense of movement, the sense of cloth on this woman's body, this subtle sense of something very thin and filmy just rubbing against her is, is really, really exceptional. So that's, um, that's the first artist I wanted to tell you something about. Um, the second is an artist working in Antwerp, very different area, um, although also very much in the throes of the Counter-Reformation, which of the Catholic Reformation, which was uh, certainly something Moki and, and Bernini would be working under. And um, this is an artist who, um, similar to Rubens, had uh, first worked in Antwerp, and then he had gone to Rome. And he was reported as being in Rome in 1601, and in, I'm sorry, in 1598, and then again in 1601. But he returned to Florence in 1602, six years before Rubens came back and set foot in, did I say Florence? Antwerp, 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 sorry. I'm shifting gears here, new country. Um, and I think that he was, just as, as Moki undoubtedly had an impact on Bernini, I think that really, in some ways, we owe the existence of Rubens as we know him to this other artist who was working just before him in Antwerp. And this artist is named Abraham Janssens. Abraham Janssens. He lived from 1570 until 1632. He apprenticed with a not terribly well-known artist in Antwerp. Then, as I said, he, he went to Rome. And he developed an incredible fascination with antique and Renaissance sculpture. And in all of his work, you see this incredibly sculptural element. Um, he also had clearly been looking at Caravaggio. And he had been looking particularly not at the lighting of Caravaggio, but at those dramatic close-ups of Caravaggio, who had just a few figures and often very close to the picture plane. Um, and this was a very, very different style than the style that was prevalent in, um, in Antwerp at the time. And I will, I will show you uh, an image from that in just a moment. But he was famous particularly for his allegories of various things. Also did a lot of religious images. Um, and this is his allegory of the four seasons. And unfortunately, it's a little hard to get good pictures of his work as well because there is no monograph on his work. Um, but this is a, a, a better image of uh, the, same, the same subject. And just to point out how it's an allegory of the four elements, you see um, 
you see someone holding lightning here for fire and someone with wings for air and the garden is growing on top of earth and this person leaning on a shell and uh, pointing toward the water is, is obviously water. So those are the four, earth, air, fire, and water, the four elements. Um, and I want you to take a look at how intensely sculptural this work is. And this sculptural quality is something that comes to be associated very much with Rubens and Jordans later on. But I would argue that as interested as Rubens was in sculpture when he was in Italy, in fact, he, he drew studies after sculpture all the time, including the Laocoon and, and other great classical sculptures, that in fact, he did not adopt this as a pictorial strategy until he came back to Antwerp and saw Janssen's work and saw how incredibly popular Janssen's work was in Antwerp. Um, one of the things I want to say about Rubens when he first went back to Antwerp is that he was feeling his way. He knew at this point what the taste was for in Italy. He didn't know anymore what the taste was like in Antwerp. And so he didn't really settle on the style he was after until a little while after he got there. And as I say, I think Janssen's was very influential in, um, in helping him develop that. Um, I wanted to show you a, a, an image of the more typical type from uh, this period, the 90s and the early uh, 1600s in, in Antwerp. This is uh, another allegory. I thought it would be a good comparison by Martin de Vos, uh, Allegory of the Seven Liberal Arts from 1590. And I think you can see it has many more figures. They're much less sculptural. They're very dressed, most of them. Um, I have to say, I have no idea. Does anybody have any idea why among the seven liberal arts, um, let me get my pointer here, that rhetoric, clearly rhetoric, because she's doing this, has a bird on her head? <laughs> uh, what? A blue jay. A blue jay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, at any rate, um, much more mannered, manneristic, florid, not nearly with quite as much uh, classical. It has classical references, obviously, but, but not paying attention to classical bodies in the same way. Okay. Now, what's interesting is this is generally considered Janssen's masterpiece. It's the Skelda River, or the Skelt, Antwerp. Again, an allegory. And it was painted, it was begun in 1608 and finished in 1609. There's a very interesting background to this image. Um, I've spoken before about the religious turmoil that uh, followed upon the Protestant Reformation and how many wars that led to in Europe. Um, and one of the principal wars that it led to was between the Spanish Habsburgs and the Netherlands. The Spanish Habsburgs were the nominal rulers, they were the rulers of the Netherlands, and extremely Catholic, and Protestants, in, and, and, and Protestants and Catholics in the Netherlands, the greater Netherlands, um, did not want to be so yoked under the power of the Habsburgs. And so they revolted, and there ensued what was called the Eighty Years' War, lasted from uh, 1568 to 1648. Um, it was a very difficult time for all the areas involved. It drained the Spanish bank account. It ruined the economy of Antwerp for a long time. It actually was very helpful in the economy of Amsterdam. But um, something extremely important was taking place in 1608 and 1609, which is that the Spanish, the Spanish and the and the Netherlandish were just so sick of war at this point. The war had started 40 years before. We're at the midpoint of the 80 years war, okay? And everybody realized that they were just bleeding out. And so the Spanish and the uh, Habsburg, the, the Habsburgs and the Netherlanders decided to call a truce. And they called that truce in 1699. It lasted for 12 years, okay? I mean, 1599, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry, 1609. <laughs> 1609. It lasted until 1621. 12-year <clears throat> truce. And the signing ceremony for this truce was going to be done in the Antwerp City Hall. 
And the city fathers of Antwerp, the city council of Antwerp, decided they wanted to have an appropriate decorative program for the hall for the moment when these warring parties and people from many countries, because at this point many countries were involved in this greater conflict, came together in Antwerp. And um, this is one of the images they commissioned for that. They commissioned two images for it. Um, the reason it's so significant is we have this figure who is very much in the pose of a classical river god, okay, representing the Skelda River. Um, he is lying with his arm on a, a big basin out of which the river is pouring. And the, the maid, the maid of Antwerp, is reaching toward him. Uh, and that's because the Skelt River that he uh, is symbolizing was the lifeline for the economy of Antwerp. Antwerp's economy was built entirely on its ability to, uh, to sail in and out and be an active port. And what the Spanish had done, actually what the Northern Netherlandish had done to beat the Spanish was to close up the Skelt so that until 1609, for many years, there had been no significant traffic in and out of Antwerp by sea. And so this was part of a plan to plea to the Spanish and the Northern Netherlandish to open the Skelt again, which did happen until, until 1621. Now, interestingly enough, the other artist who had just set foot in Antwerp, who was commissioned to make the second painting for this program, the other painting, was Rubens. And he was commissioned to do an adoration which, uh, an adoration of the Magi, which seemed to be a particularly apt topic because so many of the great leaders of different areas were coming together in a unified purpose to sign this treaty. But in looking at it, I think you can see that in some ways his work, while it's not like the Martin de Vos, it certainly partakes more of that uh, earlier Antwerp manneristic sort of energy and uh, attachment to many figures and, um, and not that much definition of bodies. I mean, certainly these figures are, are pretty defined, but um, it's, it's not about sculpture in any way. On the other hand, so, so this was, he painted this just after uh, Janssens had painted his, and both of them were put in this room, and they were very aware of each other, believe me. And then, just the next year, he has completed his uh, raising of the cross for the cathedral in Antwerp, and suddenly his work, for the first time, has taken on this incredibly muscular, sculptural, powerful, powerfully bodied look to it. And um, I, I have to say that as much as he had studied the sculpture, I think when he came back to, uh, to Antwerp, he wasn't sure that Antwerp was ready for this stuff. And suddenly he found that a great artist was working there already and being lauded for this kind of work. And it gave Rubens courage to go on and, and do this himself. Um, and they would remain in rivalry for some time. Uh, Rembrandt, um, uh, Rubens, of course, did eclipse uh, Janssens, um, partly because Janssens kept so close to his, his sculptural subjects. And so you, you pretty much always saw the sculptural reference in the work, whereas Rubens first you know, used those references and then sort of transcended them and melded them into his own style. But they would continue to be in dialogue for a while after this, and um, just to... to Put those, put those bodies together. Um, in 1610, then, Rubens would paint this Samson and Delilah, an image, again, I think he would never have painted in this way if, um, if he hadn't seen Janssen's work upon coming home. And then Janssen's, shortly thereafter, will create this Jupiter rebuked by Venus, which I think is responding to Rubens. And so you have one of these dialogues going on I wouldn't, well, I would liken it in some ways to Picasso and Brock, okay, where you have uh, two artists who start out really at the same level of notoriety, and then one eclipses the other as time goes on. But um, Janssens would continue to be a very popular artist in this style, in this vein, large, dramatic, very sculptural figures um, until the 1630s, um, and he, he dies in 1632. So that's the second of the, of the underrepresented artists that I wanted to show you today. And now I will move on to the third, whom more of you know about. Um, how many people in here went to the Hendrik Holtzius 
exhibition at the Metropolitan a few years ago. Anybody? That was sort of Holtius's coming out party as a as a renewed, a rediscovered artist in uh, in the art world. Um, and this is a self-portrait of Holtius. That Holtius was a fascinating figure, and we actually know quite a bit about his life because he lived at the same time as Karl von Mander, who was the person who wrote the biographies of the Netherlandish artists. So von Mander knew him very well, in fact, worked in the same studio setting with him. Um, Holtius was, along with von Mander, someone whose life had been very disrupted by the religious turmoil in the, in the Netherlands. And he had actually left the Netherlands and gone to study in Germany, which was much safer at the time. He'd gone to study engraving with um, an engraver, a, a Netherlandish engraver who was working in Germany, also for political reasons, and became his protege and came back to Harlem in 1577. So he was working in Harlem. We're now in the northern Netherlands, not in the southern Netherlands. Um, at, when he was a child, and, and, and Van Mander tells wonderful stories about him. He was a very funny fellow and a prankster and uh, quite full of himself, but with a sense of humor about himself, too. And one of the most remarkable things about him is that when he was a child, when he was about three years old, he had fallen headfirst into a fire. And what he did to protect himself was put his hand down, his right hand down. And his right hand was burned and grew into a position that was just utterly crabbed. And it's this hand with which he created the most sublime engravings that have ever been made in northern Europe. Um, and he also had a habit, uh, as I said, he was a joker. He would often hide himself behind the corner, behind a wall, to hear what other people had to say about his work. And then he would come out and he'd criticize them for criticizing him. Um, and this all sounds very funny and very individual, except that this actually is a trope that goes all the way back to the ancient writer Pliny, who talked the same way about some of the artists of the ancient world. So this is Van Mander sort of putting a classical gloss on the life of, of Holtzius. Um, although he did something that, that was not written about in Pliny, which is that he tended to, he traveled a certain amount to courts around Europe and, and showing his work, or, and, and just different cities, and he took a took the habit of occasionally changing clothes with his stable boy so that they would come into the town and the stable boy is riding the horse and he's walking in sort of rags next to him and um, have the, 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 the stable boy start up a conversation about art and artists and this and that and, um, and get intelligence about what artists were liked in this way and, uh, and then, of course, make it clear that he actually, um, um, well, also, uh, another part of it is that, that his stable boy would ride away, and suddenly the people of the town were left with the stable boy, who was actually Holtzius, and he could get out of them what they thought about his art. And then, of course, he could rebuke them when, when they didn't like it. Um, so this is a, a remarkable self-portrait of his from 1595. He, uh, he worked in... He worked in a number of media, and this is basically a chalk, chalk and uh, and ink drawing. It's pretty small. Um, I think I've got a detail of it where you can see his face even more closely. And the uh, he's very much working in the uh, understanding that he is an heir to Van Eyck and to Durer and working in this extremely precise and wonderful way um, with each hair so lovingly rendered and this fabulous little, um, this is called a Van Dyke beard. It was very typical of this moment. Uh, in fact, it was just starting at this moment. Van Dyke would later have one. Um, but you can also see the, the stippling. He's, he's, he's put pores in his face by, by just stippling that chalk on. It's an exceptional, exceptional job. Um, so, oh, and here's a, I just want to show you a little goat. That goat's going to come back, but this was his little preparatory sketch for a goat that was quite important to him later on. And in fact, he, he made an amazing engraving called Lust, and it was this woman, this very voluptuous woman with this goat next to her. So you know what he thinks about goats. You take a look at the look in that goat's eye. Anyway, um, so, um, so it's the 15, so, oh, so, um, he 
really started to make his name in the late 1580s when um, an artist who was working at the court of Rudolf II in Prague, the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, came, uh, sent some drawings to Harlem via another artist. And Holtzius began engraving the drawings. Now, the drawing, the main drawing, was really exceptional. It's this drawing of the marriage of Cupid and Psyche. Psyche. Um, but the engraving was even more amazing. No one had ever seen an engraving with approximately 200 figures spread out uh, in incredible detail in all of these different sorts of mannered poses, and then with these amazing, I always think of them as intestinal clouds, you know? I mean, they, they just look like these twirling uh, in, intestines. And, um, and he really developed his own engraving technique in doing this engraving. And that technique is marked by cross-hatching, which was a very uh, usual technique of the day to, to show um, shadow and shade. But what he does is instead of having straight little cross-hatches, as most artists did, he begins to curve them lovingly along the, the, the curves of the object he is trying to, to uh, describe. And it gives this impression of fishnet stockings drawn over bodies in a way that emphasizes every little curve of a body. And um, he really, in certain parts of his art would turn out to be so eccentric, and I mean that in a very positive way, that they were never followed. Uh, made it was sort of like you you couldn't do it after him. You just he he'd done it. You couldn't do it after him. But um, but in fact, this became a very popular engraving style. And a lot of people engraved a la Holtzius um, uh, for many years, many generations after this. In fifteen uh, and and in these early years, he is still very interested in the elongated figures of mannerism, a little bit like those Devos figures that we saw uh, in that earlier Antwerp painting. Um, but in the 1590s and 1591, exactly, uh, oh, well, and this is an example. This is an example of one of these incredibly stretched and elegant mannered figures of his, um, his image of Apollo. He didn't save these sorts of poses, though, for uh, mythological figures, and in fact, uh, some of his most popular prints at the time were of standard bearers uh, from the, uh, the Netherlands, and he would use these same phenomenal poses and lengthened qualities with them. This is a very, um, remember, we're, we're entering the Baroque with these great diagonals, this huge sense of flourish, um, very dramatic sort of work. Um, and then in, uh, and he also is very aware ancient sculpture. He hasn't seen it yet. He's very aware of it. And he's making fun of it sometimes. He not only shows that he can master it, but then in a work like this, his great Hercules, he shows, he draws out the absurdity. If you take this stuff to its logical extreme, how, um, how ridiculous it finally comes out to be. Um, but then in 1591, he goes to Italy. And he becomes, uh, just as Janssen's had, very, very interested in classical sculpture and much more in classical proportions as well. And his figures are no longer after that quite so elongated and attenuated, and they become more muscular. So here we see he's very much in the, in the vein of Janssen's. Uh, he's become fascinated with this sculpture. And just to give you an idea, and this is a self-portrait, by the way, down here as he is gazing up at the Farnese Hercules. Um, and I just wanted to give you another example of that fish netting so you can see how incredibly effective it is at, at creating, creating shape. I just, it's a pretty good rear end, and it, the guy's holding a bunch of balls in his hand. So um, I'd say that it's sort of uh, standing in for what they're getting to look at, and, um, and we don't. Um, anyway, uh, he comes back, and um, he, is, he knows that he's a really great engraver. And he's very upset because when he's in costume or when he's standing behind the post, he hears a lot of people saying, well, he's a great engraver, but he's no juror. Okay? He didn't like this. Um, in fact, he didn't like being poorly compared with any other artist. And so for a very specific occasion, which was a, uh, a 
fine print fair, well, a fair, a trade fair, um, that was taking place in, uh, which uh, town was it? Which town was it? I should know this immediately. Frankfurt, for a fair that was tra taking place in Frankfurt. He made a series of engravings um, of the life of Christ, and the, um, the life of Christ, yes, and the life of the Virgin. And um, he decided to do each of the six in a different artist style, as perfectly as he could in another artist style, instead of in his own style. And, um, and so he selected Ru uh, Raphael and um, uh, Barocchi, uh, an Italian, and also Albrecht Dürer. And he made this image of the circumcision, engraving of the circumcision, from, uh, that he did in 1593. Now, Dürer, and he made it to look like Dürer, okay, to show that he had this protean talent that he could do any of these things. Now, Dürer had made a circumcision in uh, 1505, but it was a woodcut, okay? This is a woodcut. And he actually never had engraved a circumcision. Um, and so this would not have looked like his circumcision, except, you know, certain uh, uh, compositional similarities, but uh, stylistically it didn't look like that. On the other hand, when Dürer engraved, he engraved in a style that is very much like the one that Holtzius uh, uh, undertook here. And this is a very, very faithful sort of Dürer-esque uh, style. Um, however, he wanted to play a trick again. And so he took this print. He had a number of them to sell. But he took this print. And the first one he put out at the fair was one that he had dipped in tea and burned a little hole where his little plaque was um, Durer always put a little plaque with Albrecht with an A and D, and so he burned this a bit so you couldn't really read what it was, and he put it out as an original Durer. And people went wild over it, and he sold it for a whole lot of money. And then, of course, he came out and said, ha, 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 I not only am a great engraver, but I can fool you about all of these other artists' engravings. So he was quite a jokester. Oh, but uh, but how did people find out? Shouldn't uh, why why would people feel really stupid when they when when finally this was brought to light? Because lingering in the background is a little self-portrait of Holtzius himself with this beard style that wasn't developed until about seventy-five years after Durer died. Okay, so um, it's very very it's very clever and. and the, the collectors who fell for this must have been pretty embarrassed. Um, he was also a painter, and he turned, actually, in his later life primarily to painting. He, he'd stopped engraving as much. And it's a little unclear how he learned to paint, because he was never apprenticed to a painter, and there's just no, there are no obviously amateurish early pictures by him. He starts painting, and suddenly his paintings are really quite, quite astonishing. Um, this is of the shell collector Jan Hovartz. Um, oil on panel 1603. After 1600, he did not uh, he did not engrave too much anymore. We're going to see what he did instead, which is very remarkable. But um, um, he he became very well known also as a painter. And uh, this is his false man with this amazing sense of skin tone and plasticity that, uh, that, that just I find it very. I feel like I'm touching it when I'm not even touching it. But there's your goat, of course, overseeing the scene, which uh, and, and, and the cat is looking kind of balefully out, too. Um, but what I really want to tell you about is a type of medium, a technique, that he created completely on his own. No one before him had done this, and no one after him ever tried to do it again, because he just was so fantastic at doing There was no place to go, no place left to go. And that was the technique of pen painting. Okay? Um, this is an ink on paper. This is not a, an engraving. Now, when artists made ink paintings and drawings on paper, they sh made them with shading and things like that. They did not make them look like engravings. But he is taking his own hand, by the way, this is his hand, crabbed up after that, after that accident. 
and he is drawing his own hand as if he were engraving it. Interestingly enough, when he makes drawings that he then turns into engravings, they don't look anything like this. They're very uh, filled with washes and and, uh, very painterly. But he's decided to make a very engraverly drawing here with a pen, okay? Um, And he would continue to play with this idea the rest of his life. But I want to show just a couple more images that are really sublime. Um, By the way, when I showed you that that great Hercules image, that was, until its time, the largest engraving that had ever been made on a single sheet. It was 24 by about 20 inches. And the copper was expensive, and so you didn't have these big plates, and it was, they were hard to engrave, and um, it was very unusual. So he was very interested in issues of scale, and that'll be important in just a second. So in 1606 and 1600, he made a couple of these pen paintings, and I want to show you these and close with these. Um, This is from 1606. Both of them are on the subject, without Ceres and Bacchus, Venus freezes, which means that love isn't going to go very far if there isn't uh, food and drink around. Okay, Um, And this is one of these pen paintings. And it is made, and I, I can't even find a picture that I can adequately show you. It looks like the finest engraving that was ever made as if he had done a sort of sepia tone engraving. Phenomenal cross-hatching, this great sense of lighting. And what's interesting about that is that he's basically, lighting of this sort is not something that is characteristic of engraving. It's something that happens in painting. And so he's playing with these ideas of, of is, this a, is this an engraving? Is it a painting? Is it a drawing? Is, what, what is it exactly? It's, a, it's almost um, mediumless in a way. Anyway, um, this painting, very large, seven feet by five feet. Okay? And the conceit of this and of the next one I show you is that they are so much larger than any engraving could ever be. And yet they're made to look like engravings. And so it's this kind of technological miracle that he is proclaiming uh, in these works. Um, I also think that it is so wonderful that, that Cupid, of course, is, the most, is one of the most important figures, uh, along with Venus, in, in making sure that Venus uh, does well. And Cupid is here heating his arrow tips in this fire, which is uh, burning from um, uh, grain and other things that might have been the province of Ceres. Um, but you have Van Mander with his self-portrait in here holding his, his, the pens that he used to make this just as if they were the arrows of Cupid. Okay, So very, very lovely conceit. To give you an idea of how highly this image was regarded in Europe and how amazing it is that so few of us know about it today, it was purchased by Rudolf II, it then went to Queen Christina of Sweden. It was purchased then by Catherine the Great of Russia. Um, it has this incredible provenance and um, has, has been uh, you know, mainly thought of as a, it has to be for a royal person. It had to be for a royal person. Okay? And then the last one of these I want to show you is one that I think is really extraordinary. I showed it for a moment on our first day of class, but I want to reiterate how wonderful I think this image is. This is in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I think it's the most incredible coup that the Philadelphia Museum ever got, basically, and they got it just a few years ago. Um, It is another one of these pen paintings, another without Ceres and Bacchus, Venus Freezes, from 1600 to 1601. It's not as big. It's three and a half by two and a half feet, but it's still far too big to be an engraving. So it's another one of these uh, sort of trick images and um, and I'll show you a detail, too. And I think you can see the, the, how finely he has cross-hatched. He has made this seem like an engraving. Um, all the little, uh, the little lines that he would car- have carved into a copper plate put on the surface of this. This is on paper um, very, very delicately with these wonderfully modeled and, and shaded 
classicizing bodies. And of course, the shade on the bodies is coming about not from uh, wash, but from the subtle cross-hatching he's done in these works. But then, he, it, this stroke of genius, I think, he lights this fire because the, the idea is you, you want people to be warm and not freezing, and so he has this fire. But it is lit with some color, and that color is only just beginning to tinge the rest of the work. And almost Pygmalion-like, it's like an engraving turning into a painting, coming to life through a little bit of color. And I think it's just an extraordinary work of art. So those are three. I, uh, I want to stop here and uh, take questions. Those are uh, some of the, three of the sort of forgotten artists of this period that I feel very passionately about and I wanted to uh, introduce you to. So I don't know if there are any questions. The, the engravings are in many locations. Um, the, um, I'm pretty sure that the, um, that the big one that I showed last is still in Prague. I couldn't say that for sure. I'm pretty sure it's in Prague. It was in that exhibition at the Met a few years ago, but it's the only time I've had a chance actually to see it. They're really astonishing. But you mean some of the other images as well? Um, most of the Janssens are still in Antwerp because he didn't really become much of a presence outside of Antwerp, but they're very beloved in, in Antwerp. Um, there are a couple in America, although I haven't seen them, and that's because his work fell so out of favor that it could be bought for you know pennies on the on the hundred dollars uh, in the 19th century, and so um, actually there are some good ones in this country. Uh, that, that's the, true of this painting too, by the way, um, the the one that's in Philadelphia. Uh, I mean, it costs plenty of money, but nothing like most old masters cost because it just is not that recognizable product of a, of a Rembrandt or, or something like that. Uh, this, is, this is interesting. Uh, that's, not, that's not recorded, okay? I, I mean, Van Mander is the only one who tells these stories and, and he didn't say. However, remember I said that, that part of his story went back to Pliny, that this idea of hiding behind a corner and listening to what people said about your pictures and then coming out and scolding them um, came from Pliny. Well, of course, the idea of creating something that looked old and selling it as someone else's work for a high price and then being shown to be its even greater than the ancients producer was Michelangelo, who got his big start by faking an ancient Cupid that he buried in the ground and roughed up and had sent to Rome and sold as an antique. Okay, And when the when the, uh, the person, Cardinal Riario, Car Raphael Riario, um, discovered that it was actually by a, a you know, 20-year-old Florentine boy, he was A, really angry, B, demanded his money back, and C, got Michelangelo down there to work for him as fast as he could. <laughs> so this is, uh, this, certainly that echo is in the ears of, of this story, too. How did, he get the color How did he get the color in this work? I don't know which microphone I'm supposed to be talking into. Um, it's actually paint. This is a paint. It's the one bit of paint. Well, I should say he's also done a, a bit of touching of this paint over the surfaces of the bodies, just the most minimal amount. It's so, it, it's, when you, when you think about painting in this time, when you think about uh, Rubens or something like that, the amount of paint he is kissing these figures with is so subtle, just the tiniest. It's like that first rush of light from the, from the uh, torch as it falls on them is beginning to wake them out of this sort of gray sleep. Yeah? This plane with media and with technique, give us a sense of how Holtius fits in. Is this part of a tradition? You mentioned, that, you mentioned earlier that no one else attempted this sort of thing. But were there other artists who were playing in this period with uh, blending media, with, yes. uh, with playing with your expectations? Um, well, first of all, I, I would say that um, going all the way back to Jan van Eyck in the Netherlands, and remember, this, this man is very aware of working in that tradition. Going back to Jan van Eyck, I think one of the reasons that van, Eyck, van Eyck's painting was as well-received as it was is that he could so mimic other media within his painting. Painting actually was not a popular art form in, uh, when Van Eyck was, was first working in the 1400s. 
painting was lower class. What was uh, what the what rich people had were works in gold and marble and and precious gems and things like that, and uh, and at the least sculpture. And Van Eyck made gems look more real than real. And so I think there is very much a tradition, especially in Netherlandish art, of, of this happening. On the other hand, I would, I would argue that one of the artists most to deny his medium, to pretend that his medium is something else, is in a way Bernini, who creates billowing cloth and, and fingers that turn into leaves and these, these, um, these terrific feats of marble work that marble could not sustain. I mean, it was, a, it was like a miracle that they could, that they could stand up. Now, I think that it's, it's been a staple of, of European artists for quite a while, I think, many of them, to play with, with medium this way. But would you say that it's something that develops more in this period, that artists are, are no. working with this more than they were in the Renaissance? Uh, no, I, I don't think they were working with it more than in the Renaissance. Um, I think... I, I think it's been a theme I, I, that, has, that has run pretty much from the Renaissance, at least. I, I, I can't speak for before the Renaissance, but it's run pretty much from the Renaissance until, until now, I think, really, on and off. Linda. Charlotte, I was talking last time about how Shakespeare got famous, and I wondered if you could reflect. You, you started to a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit more about the process by which pretty well-known artists become unfamous. I mean, how, oh. how does this work? Okay, how do pretty well-known artists become unfamous? First of all, styles change, okay? And um, the style, as I said, Holtzius' method of engraving be, uh, remains very prevalent in, in engraving for many years. But the basic styles of these Netherlandish mannerists fell out of fashion pretty quickly. And really, they weren't, they didn't gain value again until the 20th century. And a lot of these things you could pick up. Of course, the, a couple of these amazing ones were in royal collections. By the way, this one, I forgot to tell you the provenance of this one, which is even better than the other one. This one was made for Rudolf II, went to Christina of Sweden, was purchased by Catherine the... Uh, I'm sorry. Um, then it went from Christina of Sweden to Charles II of England, to James II of England, to George I of England, and today it's in Philadelphia, Okay. How the, how the mighty fall, but anyway. Um, uh, so going out of style is, is one way. Um, for someone like uh, Janssens, um, his work really didn't stand up to Rubens in the end. Um, and, and Rubens had eclipsed him before. I mean, sort of sad that, that he was no longer as respected in, in Antwerp, even while he was still alive. Um, but as I say, I don't think Rubens would have gotten where he was without him. Um, and in the case of Mulkey, for instance, he was also an eccentric. Nobody else was making work like that at the time. And so at the time he made it, there was quite a bit of, people didn't like it that much necessarily. Um, but also, he has an extant body of only 25 sculptures. And a lot of them remain. He's got a couple in Rome, you know, the majestic one in St. Peter's. But most of them are in a bit outlying areas. And for instance, in Orvieto, that's not. That's a very visited town. It's a, it's a high tourist destination, but the thing is locked away in this basically shed, and you have to, you know, go to great pains to see it. So, um, those are some of the some of the ways. Uh, just to add to that, let's not forget that many musicians and composers as well were forgotten. Mm -hmm. Johann Sebastian Bach died in 1750. His music was completely forgotten until the 1820s when Mendelssohn rediscovered the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, we have stories that his autograph manuscripts were used to wrap fish in the harbor of uh, Hamburg. Uh, same thing with Monteverdi. His music was forgotten until well into the late 19th, early 20th century. So, you know, you raise, you ask a very good question and mm -hmm. one that has um, often very, uh, a very sad Answer. Yes, Vermeer. <laughs> the, about, you know, the talent that is often... Uh, um, some of Vermeer's gone. most famous paintings were sold for the equivalent of $2 in the late 1800s. Okay? Um, but, I mean, the, it's interesting that the, the, you know, the loss, these, the loss of reputation of these artists was in some ways 
the, the gain of American museums because they remained, some of these works remained the only works that American museums could afford, when, even when they didn't have that much money. And so we have an unusually good collection of Baroque and early Baroque art in, in this country, actually. Yes? I wonder, you know, I, I put these up at the same time. I wonder if I had left the left one off, if you would have been so put off by his presence in there. Um, but this was a very common, very common theme. And in fact, this whole work was so deliciously artificial. I mean, that was so much the basis of it that I don't think he was worrying about taking away from the emotional or intellectual meaning of it. He was joining in the artificiality because, of course, these figures, it's, it's not like someone dressed as he is with that beard is ever going to be hanging out in the woods with figures that look like this. You know, it's just not, not going to happen. But artists very frequently included themselves in their works. The, the idea of separate self-portraiture was not uh, an incredibly popular one until, well, the 1500s maybe. But um, uh, artists for, well, for millennia had included little pictures of themselves in their works. Partly because a lot of those works were religious works, unlike this. And by putting themselves in the religious work, when people prayed to the work, well, they would be praying for the artist as well. Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good way to get a freebie. Yeah. Yes, the question is, um, uh, were there museums at this time? Were they not museums at this time? Were most of these works actually kept by patrons and, and collectors and put away in their... Uh, and one of the reasons that artists fall out, too, is, is like in the Caravaggio book we read, that they get misidentified, and so their work goes off into the sunset. Uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole artist named Judith Lester, fabulous female artist, who was lost for centuries because everybody thought her work was done by Halls until they uncovered her signature. But anyway, I, I, I digress. Um, no, there were no museums. Um, some major collectors in cities like Rome had sculpture gardens and collections in a big palace that they would invite other, uh, other posh people to, but there were no public museums. And so, uh, now, these prints got around. I mean, the, the prints were pretty widespread. You didn't have to be that wealthy to, to have one of the prints. Um, but these other works, there were no museums. It really weren't public museums until the French Revolution, until the, the, the French liberated the Louvre and turned it into an art museum. Yes? Yes, well, the, the religious ones absolutely were visible to the public in churches. That's absolutely right. Um, the, the, the private ones were not. Yeah. Is there any evidence that Moki tried and failed with this very technologically advanced way of, of carving marble that it's, it has to do with the tensile strength of marble that to, to have it stick out in these directions like this is very uh, precarious. Um, there's no evidence about there's There's not that much known about him. You know, um, and there's certainly no evidence. He, and certainly he would not, it's not as if he would have said, oh, here are my two broken ones before I've got the. <laughs> so um, there, there, there isn't any evidence of that. But I, he had to have been practicing this. He didn't just suddenly one day make this sculpture, you know. But it also took him several years to make. Yeah. How large are those Mokis? How large are the Mokis? They're over life size, just over life size. The, the Mary is about this tall. In fact, she's not even over life size. She's over my life size. <laughs> yes, really, wars. You're absolutely right. And, and I mean, the reuse of, of marble, uh, the breaking up of sculptures, iconoclasm, uh, all these natural disasters, and then, of course, also just images falling out of favor within families, and they throw them away. Yeah, I mean... It would be amazing to be able to go back in a time machine and go through the garbage cans of people in, in this area. Because, I mean, you, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. There's, I mean, the, it's such a relatively small percentage of what was made originally. That would be a fun book. It would. You're absolutely right. <laughs> um, from time to time, yes. Although... Um, the worst of that was over by the time we got to this. Um, 
that it was in the Protestant Reformation, uh, and there, there was there was quite a bit of movement again. There was a there was a person pre-Reformation ruler in Florence named uh, Savonarola, who was a monk, who was the one who initiated the bonfire of the vanities to burn a lot of these images and actually turned the minds around of some painters like Botticelli who stopped painting nudes and things like that. Um, certainly, there were clerics who would have disapproved of this sort of work, but there wasn't a large public outcry to get rid of it. What did happen was, to a large extent, the nudity was removed from uh, Christian imagery, and particularly imagery of, of Mary was shown more buttoned up not in not in Caravaggio's work, but um, uh, so it's it's kept more secular. Yes, yes. Well, the, it, it, within a few years of, of Michelangelo having painted his Last Judgment, the Counter Reformation, the Catholic Reformation began, and uh, the Council of Trent came about. And during his lifetime, they had someone go in and paint pants on all the on all the figures. And in fact, the Christ was nude. And when they did the restoration, they took a lot of those off but they left the, the cloth on Christ. I mean, they thought that was just the next, another generation can decide to do that. <laughs> oh, he was called, oh, say, and say, say, say the word again. Bracatoni. Bracatoni, Bracatoni, okay. <laughs> uh-huh, putting the pants on, okay. person and they always were against him for besides his seriousness he came from Lombardy he had other experiences and so on and so forth and by chance one of the statues of the river the four rivers had the hand like this against the facade of the Sant'Agnese in Piazza Navona so the Roman said he's afraid that the facade might fall (laughs) (laughs) thank you for for that well, it looks like we're just about at our hour, and so thank you so much for, for sticking with me for this time.